I don't know about you guys, but I really love Christmas. Um, I love pretty much everything, most everything about it. It's one of my favorite times of year. Um, I love the trees, the lights, uh, gathering with friends and family, um, especially this year. For, we've been four Christmases without being home, um, so to be able to just spend time with friends and family is, uh, is, is very dear to us this year. Um, I love all the food that you eat. I love singing Christmas hymns especially. I absolutely love Christmas hymns and sing them all the time um, with the family and in the car and wherever. Um, I love funny Christmas movies and serious Christmas movies. I love cheesy Hallmark Christmas movies with my wife and daughter because they love making fun of me when I cry. Um, that's, that's how much my children love me. And uh, I love Advent readings with the family, even though it seems like we can never keep up and, and don't finish half the time. Um, but I love all of this because of the focus that there is on the incarnation of Christ. Um, I love that there's a special time for us to just think about um, the anticipation and hope that we see that, that the people have for so long and waiting for Christ. Um, I just like that focus on that. And, and just as we think about God who created everything became a man. Like that is still like there should be such wonder that we have for that. And so all of this is wrapped up in this Christmas season. And so I just, um, I love all of that. And, and when I think about the anticipation that, that the remnant had in waiting for their Messiah, in many ways, we're in a similar position. We're on the other side of the cross, but, but we are waiting in anticipation and hope for the second coming of Jesus. Um, and so much of our life now is, is as we're waiting expectantly, we're waiting for Christ to come um, and fulfill his promise that we know he's going to fulfill. Um, we're living our lives, and we ought to be, as strangers and aliens to this world, knowing this is not our home, but we have a future homecoming, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's some things I don't really particularly care for for Christmas. Um, hate might be pretty close to the way I feel sometimes with, with the busyness that comes with it, the, the commercialization of Christmas. Um, this, this could be a special time for us to just revel in what God has done, um, and it's overshadowed with busyness and worrying and gifts and family and drama that comes with it. Um, so... That's some things that I don't particularly care for, but I don't ever want that to overshadow the joy and anticipation and hope. Um, because our hope isn't in this world. This is a time to be reminded that our hope is not in, in gifts or parties or jobs or promotions or 401ks or insurance or time off of work or a family or anything else um, other than what God has done for us in Christ. And this is a time where we can remember these things in, in a special way. Um, and so I hope that even this evening a little bit, we can be reminded of, of God, what God wants us to hope in and, and his goodness and mercy and grace to us, um, that we can slow down from the busyness and remember that our hope and, and anticipation be, should be centered on, on what God is doing through us today and in anticipation of what he's going to do with the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so that's a little bit about what I've been thinking about and what I want us to, to think about together and so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, actually, and we're going to be looking at um, the birth story uh, or the, the narrative leading up to the birth story of John. And so uh, Luke chapter 1 is the longest chapter in the New Testament, ringing in at 80 verses, but do not be afraid. We will not be going through 80 verses tonight. 
So if you want to open that up, I'd like to just begin by reading um, Luke 1, 1 through 25. And most of our time tonight will be in the first um, seven verses, and then we'll, we'll continue through, though, to get through um, 25. So let's read together. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughter, daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as, as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in, conclusion for, in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And so as Luke opens up his gospel in the first four verses, we see this introduction where he is writing uh, to a man named Theophilus. And Luke tells us he's not an original eyewitness, but he has carefully investigated. He has talked um, to both the eyewitnesses and also to the servants of the word. His careful investigation was from the very first. Now, from the very first, minimally would mean here where the story starts with um, John the Baptist with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But, but I think Luke is actually meaning something different. I think he means going all the way back to the beginning of some of God's prophecies. And we'll, I'll try to explain where I'm getting that from in a minute. And so um, 
I, yeah, the, this is because of, of how many references we see coming in um, in, the, in the story here, but also in the next few chapters of Luke. Um, when Luke writes this, he tells us that he writes in an orderly sequence. And so I just, just a, a brief comment here that I think is helpful. It's not necessarily directly related to our text, but um, sometimes uh, when we read the Gospel of Luke or other Gospels, um, we get confused when we read because we're ex- we, we read it like we would try to read an epistle, a letter from, like, say, Paul or Peter or James, and it's not an epistle, it's a Gospel. And so we're more generally tend to be more familiar and how to go through an epistle because it seems more straightforward, closer to what we're used to reading in today's day um, than a gospel, especially like Luke. And so when Luke says that he writes in an orderly sequence, um, that does not mean he writes in a chronological sequence. And so um, Luke is Luke is brilliant. Luke's um, Greek, scholars tell us, is, is excellent. And um, But at the same time, we shouldn't expect Luke to write like, um, a 21st century scientist or some investigative journalist of today. Um, Luke's writing in the methods and, and conventions of his own time. Um, but again, it, he, he tells us it's carefully investigated and written in an orderly sequence. Um, and Luke has ordered these things for a purpose, for a reason. Luke is driving at something with his gospel. He tells us why. He says that he writes these things so that Theophilus, and by extension this includes us and, and Christians universally, um, may know the certainty of the things about which we have been instructed. Um, there is much in the world today which casts doubt on God and his word. There are many out there who make you want to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. Satan, the great deceiver, um, he desires your destruction and he has been doing this from the very beginning back um, in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so Luke is writing. He's carefully investigated. He's ordered it. He's got a purpose and a reason, and he wants to strengthen us in the faith so that we have certainty in what we have been taught. Now, John tells us basically the same thing in his gospel, um, but John tells us towards the end of his gospel, uh, chapter 20, 30, and 31, where he says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of um, the disciples that are not written in this book, um, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. John's writing for a purpose. Luke is writing for a purpose. God's word to us is written for a reason. And it's not just to give us some intellectual facts about history, but it's to persuade us to believe, to follow Jesus, to abandon everything we have once held dear or perhaps are now holding dear that we ought not to be holding dear, and to follow him no matter what the cost. Because by doing this, we will have life in his name, and there can be certainty in this, certainty in this. So that's how Luke introduces uh, the book, and it's always good to um, just be reminded of that, to just take a few minutes to remember um, what's going on and why did Luke write this. So Luke is, is, is a physician we find out in the book of Acts, so Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and in this, um, he's also, though, a, a very good historian, as, as he said. He's carefully investigated, looked at source documents, talked to people, the people that were there that were eyewitnesses. And when he writes um, in, this, in these first uh, five, six, and seven, um, he situates us in the historical time 
of the days of King Herod of Judea, but he also connects us with where we are in salvation history and connects us directly with the Old Testament. And I understand you guys have been spending time in Leviticus, and that's really good because when we understand Leviticus, it actually helps us to understand a little bit about what's going on in the first chapter of Luke. Um, I don't have time to explore all of this with you, and I, I wouldn't want to, um, but Zechariah is a priest, and he is married to someone who is the daughter of Aaron. So right off the bat, in the beginning, we see Luke telling us historically, time of King Herod, and yet he's already from the beginning, connecting us all the way back to the priesthood and Aaron. Right off the bat, he's connecting us to the story, to the promises of God, that God's about to be working and fulfilling something. And so um, as, as he does this, we're, we're, we're thinking about promises. We're thinking about God's promises. And so um, we'll keep going here. There's also a problem right in the very beginning. Um, we have a priest we have a wife of a priest, both from Aaron's line, and they are godly people. Godly people, they're following the requirements of the law, and yet they don't have children. And so this is a problem because we wouldn't expect that people who are of the priesthood of Aaron, a Levite, to say, wait, we're godly, and yet we have no children. And they aren't young people. They are not young people. Um, and so this, this problem... Is, is kind of twofold. There's an individual problem for a real couple and a real space and a real time, but it's also indicative of Israel at large because we see in a little bit as God talks to, um, as Gabriel talks to Zechariah, there is uh, joy for Zechariah, but there's also something happening in the nation of Israel. So there's something in particular with this couple, but it's also indicative of what's going on with Israel. And then by extension, Luke brings in the Gentiles as well. And so um, as we're reading this, though, and this problem about a, a godly woman who doesn't have offspring, like something ought to be going off in our mind, and it certainly was for, for the readers of this day, wait, there's, I remember something about godly people who didn't have children in the Old Testament. And so even though he's starting us with Aaron and, and the priesthood, he actually then takes us back further to Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and, and Sarah at this point. Gets us back to the end of Genesis 11 and into Genesis 12 uh, because we're thinking Sarah had no chance. So, so it tells us they're well along in years. They're past the point of childbirth. They have no chance. They've been praying for a child. God has not answered that prayer. They, they, uh, they're just in very many ways like Abraham and Sarah. And then if we think about the Old Testament, there's Rebecca and Hannah and um, Samson's mom. So, so we just have all these, all these places in the Old Testament where there's either barren women or unable to conceive. And, and it's like, okay, like how, why, what's going on here? I mean, it's certainly a theme through the Old Testament, bringing us into John and then, of course, Jesus. So there's a typology going on there. And there, there's more than that typology because when you, when you go back now, you're going back to Genesis 3.15 because... In this anticipation piece, from the very beginning of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, God makes a promise, and he says, the seed of the woman will do what? Will strike or crush the head, depending on your translation. And so ever since Genesis 3.15, the people of God have been waiting in anticipation, who is this going to be? 
It wasn't Cain and Abel, and it wasn't Seth, it wasn't Noah, it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't David. Like, you can go down the line, and every time you're like, is this male descendant, is this the one? And, and we get more revelation as Scripture goes on, and, and we find out that he's not here yet. We're waiting for this one. And so there, there has been an anticipation in biblical history from Genesis 3.15, from the beginning, who is this one? Who is it? And so Luke is bringing us into this story from the very beginning in these first verses of 5 through 7. He is connecting us all the way back with the promises of God. And all through the gospel, we see this theme of promise fulfillment, of God is faithful to his promise. It will not go flat. And so that is how Luke is opening up in in this beginning of 5 through 7. And so then, so he's on duty, he's in the temple, it's his time, and the way they do it is by lot, there's like 18,000 of these guys, and basically you do the math, and like once in a lifetime, you're going to be serving at this time. And so it's by lot, so under God's sovereign control, he's the one in the temple at, at this time. Gabriel comes in, and he makes the announcement And um, one note before that, just before the announcement, it says at the hour, this is verse 10, at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. And it's another theme in Luke that if you develop it between Luke and then into Acts, when God's people are praying and worshiping and gathered together, God does things. And it's all through. And it's even in the passage in Acts 13 that he read when they sent out Barnabas and Paul. And so when God's people are praying and worshiping and fasting and seeking the Lord, he's doing things in real space and real time today. And so, so he comes, he appears, Zechariah sees him and terrified, absolutely terrified, um, which is the normal response. I don't know what an angel looks like. I've never seen one, but everybody that does is utterly terrified. I don't think our drawings of cute little angels, I don't think we've got it right. I'm just saying. So he's terrified. The angel says to him, do not be afraid because your prayer has been heard. So we don't know much about his prayer other than he's a a man that wants to have children and he wants his wife to conceive. It's not happened. And then he says, there will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice in his birth. So so we're seeing joy and delight for for him and his wife, but but there's also going to be many who are going to rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, still in the womb. And here we go. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So, so we see, and then, and then after that we get into what um, Pastor Neil spoke about this morning. In Malachi, this was not planned, but praise the Lord for he set the stage beautifully. Thank you. And, and so he's coming in the power of Elijah, and there's a couple of things there's, there's this tone all through Luke, and Pastor Neil mentioned it this morning. He doesn't turn all of Israel. There's, there's, there's some that come to faith, and there's some that don't. And so while there's this note of rejoicing in it, there's also this chord of, but it's not everyone. It's not everyone. So he will, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready um, for the Lord a prepared people. And so one of the things that I, especially in this time of year, uh, most families at this point 
are going to have gatherings with family members that they might not have throughout the rest of the year. Sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's fairly common that this is going to take place. And as we think about this, what are some practical applications? Just even today as we're thinking about um, turning the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. And in here, there are all sorts of relationships, which I have no idea about because I don't know you. Um, but I know most, I know a lot of people, and I know my family, and I know that there's a lot of issues and a lot of families. And this is one of those times where we have, again, to think about what does it mean to be a minister of reconciliation, to be an ambassador for Christ in our own families, especially in this time of Christmas, when everyone is aware of what is going on, that the, the nation as a whole is celebrating Christmas, even though different pockets is going to mean different things to people. But, but this is our opportunity to take the gospel to especially our friends and, and close relatives, our family that we're gathering with in a special way that we wouldn't be in other times of the year. And so don't, take, don't miss this opportunity. Sometimes in the family, whether it's brothers or fathers or children, our job, what John was preparing them to do, God's heart is to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. So in your own families, I don't know what your relationship is with your children, whether they're young or grown, this is an opportunity to continue to look and take the gospel of Jesus into your own family. And, and just taking that principle out, not just fathers to children, but but. Sons to fathers, brothers to sisters, sisters to brothers. This is an opportunity that we have to humble ourselves and be ministers of reconciliation in our own family, taking the gospel to them. Often it's the hardest to take the gospel and to talk to our families about that. It's way easier for me to talk to people in Papua New Guinea than it is my own family. They don't have, we don't have the history, Right? There's, there's a lot there. And so I just want to encourage you to think about what, as, as John's work was preparing, it was preparatory to wait for Jesus. This work was turning the hearts of fathers back to their children. So what does that look like for you and your family? I don't know. But I would encourage you to think about that, whether that's your children today, again, your parents or family. Um, I think that's one uh, note of application that we can all take to heart. So after this message that Gabriel gives um, Zechariah, we see a question, and if we didn't have the rest of the text, we really wouldn't have a problem with this question. How can I know this? But Gabriel rebukes him immediately, doesn't wait. He rebukes him. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Like, uh uh-oh, like this this is not good. And so he rebukes him because... He doesn't have faith. Now, we're not talking about saving faith, right? This is not what's going on here. But if, if we go back, like Luke's already told us they're godly, right? Like this is a godly man and a godly woman, and he's told he's going to have a child, and he asks what, what we might think is to be an innocent question. Well, how can I know this to be true? And Gabriel is rebuking him, and he tells us he's rebuking him um, because he doesn't have faith. You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. And so this is a a pause to to us to say, wait a second, what's going on? And I know one of the things that that God really was was working on me is, is how often do we pray without faith? How often do we pray and then forget what we've prayed and then something happens and like, uh, yeah, that's probably a coincidence. I I don't really know that God did that. 
And, and this, is, this is a rebuke to all of us who, who lose sight of prayer and faith that God is actually going to answer the prayer. And think about it. I mean, from a human perspective, it's impossible for his wife to conceive. Like, it's done. And, and so he's like, yeah, like, I hear what you're saying, Gabriel, but, like, really, like, give me, I need a sign. I need, how am I going to know that this is really going to happen? Because, I mean, it, it can't happen. Um, and so I think, I think one of the things that we need to take away from this piece is, is praying with faith. I think that's not the main application of this text, but it's certainly a minor one to say, how are we praying? Are we praying with faith? Are we continuing to go to the Lord with what we need and asking him to answer our prayer? Or are we like this godly man who on one level seems to have some things together, but on another, there's a lack of faith. There's a lack of faith that God is going to answer prayer. And that's not a space that's fun to live in. Um, there's no hope there, right? right? There's a loss of hope in that. And as Christians, we don't need to lose hope. God wants us to be hopeful that he is going to do this. And so as Gabriel rebukes him, hey, here's your sign. <laughs> you can't talk anymore. You're done. You'll be able to talk again when it happens because it will happen because everything that God says is going to happen will happen. And so there's, there's this continual promise and fulfillment theme through all of Luke. So they're waiting outside. It's taken longer than necessary. They know something's going on. He comes out. He can't speak. He's doing some kind of sign language. Nobody knows what's happening other than there's a vision. Um, and it says when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. So, all right. And then we get a little after action here. After, the, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And so Elizabeth, after all these years of praying and waiting and praying, the Lord answers her prayer and she rejoices, and she thanks the Lord for this because she knows that God is the only one that could have done this, and he takes away her disgrace. And, and I'm not going to get into all the cultural elements of her being disgraced, but um, it was a very significant thing for a woman in those times, and especially of um, that line to be um, childless. And one of the things that we can look at as we look at Elizabeth and how she interacted, like she is continuing to be a godly person. Now, now Zechariah may have lost hope in some sense, but he was still faithfully serving the Lord in that. And Elizabeth, we see her barren, but she's not bitter. She's not walking away from the Lord. The Lord has handed her a lot that nobody wants. She didn't want it. She's praying. She's waiting. And the Lord has not answered it, but she remains faithful. And then when the answer comes, she praises him even more. And that's a, that's a question that, that we can begin to ask ourselves. Where are we? Because ultimately, God has us where we are. We don't like to admit that sometimes. We don't like to think about that sometimes. Um, I can't remember Sunday school, your sermons talked about we, we want to get out of these situations in a hurry. But the Lord has us where he has us. And how long do you think these people prayed? Day after day, year after year, decade after decade, she is past the point of bearing children. And sometimes God doesn't answer prayers immediately. Sometimes it takes a really long time from our human perspective to see God's answer to prayer. 
But God does things in his way, in his time. He doesn't consult us because he knows we are not the ones that have the answer. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the perspective, but he does. So what he wants us to do is to come to him and say, God, here I am. Psalm 73 was mentioned. Great psalm. We can go to God in the right way and question what's going on, and we can go to God in the wrong way. But what he wants us to do is come to him in faith and hope and anticipation of God doing something, even if it's not what exactly we think ought to happen. That should be our posture before the Lord. And so just in conclusion and to to, to wrap this up, I've been thinking um, over in Hebrews, the end of that, chapter 13, I'd just like to read 11 through 15 and, and maybe a little final application and be done. And it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. John took away the disgrace of Elizabeth. Jesus has taken away our disgrace. And John is a front runner of Jesus. We continually reminded that we need to offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. And so in this time, as, as we reflect on how Jesus has gone outside the camp to bear our disgrace, we are called to go outside with him and bear the same disgrace. What does that mean today for you? I think it goes back to your family, especially during this time. What does it mean to bear disgrace in front of your family? Are they going to laugh at you, make fun of you? Your job, will they fire you? I don't know. I'm not saying go out and get fired, but I'm saying count the cost of following Jesus. Do people know that you're a Christian? It says, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. In everything we do, we ought to be confessing the name of Jesus, praising him. Our family should know that. Our coworkers should know that. Our neighbors should know that. We are to be people who are walking around saying, praise the Lord. Whatever the lot he's handed us, whatever season of suffering and disgrace that we're in right now, because there's a lot of disgrace that can come in our life. It could be family disgrace, job disgrace if you get fired. There's a lot of disgrace. How are we going to respond? Are we going to be a people of God who are continually offering up a praise to God? Are we going to be embittered and lose hope and lose anticipation and walk away? So, so God is reminding us this season. God is calling us back. He wants us to turn um, the hearts of fathers to children. He wants us to bear the reproach and disgrace that he has outside the camp, continually to make his name great, because that's what we're here for, is to make his name great, not ours. And then he promises. In anticipation and hope, we remember this is not our home. This is not our home. This is temporary. This is a mist. This is a vapor. It doesn't feel like it in the present sometimes, but it is. We need that perspective to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus Christ has come and borne our disgrace. Lord, we were enemies, hating you, running from you, rebelling against you. And 
Lord, you still loved us and you still sent your son to redeem us, to reconcile us, to bring us into your family, to call us your children. Lord, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the worthiness of your son, Jesus. Lord, will you continue to have grace and mercy upon us this day? Lord, would you open our hearts? Lord, would you make ways for relationships to be restored between fathers and children and families this Christmas season? Lord, will people, your people go anew into the world with boldness, proclaiming and confessing the name of Jesus? Father, we need your grace and mercy in this time because we lack the strength and we, we tremble and, and we, we're fearful and we're timid at times. Lord, would you give us boldness? Will you strengthen us by your spirit, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.